Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and I'm here with the Libertarian, Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He is the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU and is a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. And today we're discussing a few Supreme Court decisions covering issues from freedom of religion to the right to bear arms. So the latter first, it's a, first, it's a big case. New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Now, Richard, the issue at hand was whether the state of New York's requirement that in order for an individual to receive a permit to carry a firearm outside of their home um, required a proper cause um, must exist. I mean, the question is, if, if that is too much, too onerous of a burden. Um, I want to ask you, this case, you know, decided 6-3, it seems pretty um, uh, uh, cut and dried. But is it a great decision now, considering the recent spate of mass shootings, as well as the bipartisan gun safety legislation currently making its way through Congress? Um, look, I think what happens is we first have to take the constitutional issues, and then what we have to do is to take the social issues and see the extent to which they interact. I mean, the first thing, of course, to remember is that there is a constitutional provision out there called the Second Amendment, and it's been interpreted by the Supreme Court in ways that I actually disagree with on some key points. The uh, text basically talks about a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state. That's the preamble. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Well, the first part of this clause essentially was understood originally, I'm quite confident, as a basic relationship uh, that the militia clause had to federalist issues. Uh, the militia governance under the Article One of the Constitution divides authority over the militia between the state and the federal government. And the original purpose, I think, looking at the 14th Amendment in context, disagreed with by many, is that the federal government cannot compromise the ability of the states to uh, organize their own militias by putting heavy regulation on the use of guns. And since it was a jurisdictional provision, it was absolute, shall not be infringed, i.e. by the federal government. This means that the decision does not apply in two cases. First, it does not apply to Washington, D.C., where Heller was decided, because there was no federal issue there. It was just a question of whether or not the federal government could regulate the District of Columbia. And then it also means that McDonald, which was decided a few years later, is probably wrong, because if you're trying to protect state autonomy against federal government, it's hard to say that the Second Amendment limits the ability of the state to regulate arms when its very purpose was to allow the state to have exclusive control over those issues. But this is water under the dam, um, at least in both cases. And so the way in which you now read for posterity, the combination of the two cases together is simply this, uh, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, right, which shall not be infringed, is subject to reasonable regulation. The issue then is what's the particular standard of review? And before we had cases like Heller, the kind of general understanding was that it was rational basis. Any weak rationalization would do. And since guns could always harm you, there was always a weak rationalization available uh, to essentially limit their use. Uh, Heller understood as part of constitutional guard jargon is that the Supreme Court through the work of Justice Scalia raised the standard of review from this very low rational basis standard to a higher intermediate scrutiny standard, which means essentially that you take into account roughly equally the perils of overregulation, shutting down too much gun activity, and the perils of underregulation, allowing too many guns, bazookas or whatever, to walk around on the public street. And so it becomes a deeply 
um, balancing kind of act. So that's the way in which we set the, the basic stage. And then the question is, what's the particular regulation? Well, here uh, they are trying to regulate your ability uh, to bear arms in public. And what they're saying in order for you to be able to bear arms in public, you have to show not only that um, you're not gonna do harm, you have to show that you have a special need for protection that is not available to other citizens in the state. And what the decision essentially stands for is the proposition uh, that uh, it requires some degree of scrutiny to see whether or not this is overbroad. And since these are ordinary citizens with no history of any kind of gun violence, trying to use it for perfectly legitimate purposes to protect themselves and others, you have to let it go into these, this area. The dissent, of course, is much more on the rational basis side, and they will scream from the hilltops uh, that you cannot do this, citing in effect some of the social complexities. Uh, but as a legal decision, uh, the way I like to put it is you have to give both words full power. The word keep means to keep as to own and to possess. It doesn't mean you could keep locked up in a safe to be opened only by a combination uh, by two people. And the right to bear arms doesn't mean that you have the right to bear them inside your home, but can only bear them outside of the home if you meet some extraordinary test. So it is perfectly clear that the state can take away guns from anybody who has a history of violence with respect to their use, even with respect to people who have a tendency to commit crimes, even if they've never committed any or whatsoever. It certainly doesn't bar the right of the state to stop people from being howitzers on the public street and so forth. I think in effect, the best way to do is to read this as a relatively modest and relatively sensible decision. Uh, we could talk about the social consequences later, uh, but it seems to me that this decision should not be unexpected. And that given the two mistakes as I see them in both Heller and McDonald, I think the decision is correct. Well, I'd like to ask you about Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence, which I think in a sense responds to the criticisms of this, of this uh, decision that the Supreme Court is getting rid of, of requirements or safety uh, you know, levels, objective, some standards of owning and possessing a gun and, and you know, wherever, even if it's inside or, or outside. Um, along with New York, California, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Rhode Island, um, the other states that have these may issue regimes, um, is what they're called, as opposed to 43 other states have shall issues, which have, again, standards on their own. Um, and I think Justice Kavanaugh was trying to make sure that uh, I guess it's clear that those laws stand. So I'm just curious because I'm not as familiar. How often are concurrences like this actually helpful? I mean, why was this necessary to do instead of just issuing the ruling? Look, I mean, one of the things that's constantly at stake in these areas is do we believe that this is a definitive decision of the final position or is this an opening wedge in order to move much further? So if you recall what the original version of Dobbs was that was released, uh, Justice Alito went out of his way to saying this is a unique case. It turns out we're only dealing with the sanctity of human life. Uh, nobody should read this. I think it was clear that, as meaning that cases like Obergefell on same-sex marriages were up for grabs again. And the American left essentially has predicted that this is just a ruse and that uh, when this is done, they'll mow down all of these other decisions so as to return us to something like a pre-1960 state um, on, on gay rights and other kinds of social issues. And Kavanaugh is trying to forestall that. And he does it by A, giving a warning, and B, once you write a concurrence like this, it would make you extremely 
uh, awkward for you to say, you know what, I'm changing my mind on this stuff. So I think it's a perfectly legitimate sort of function and many concurrences written by people like Justice Powell and Justice Hall and in previous eras were done exactly to do that. What happens is they wanted to make sure that the case went this far to be sure because they joined it, but it went no further. I think it's a perfectly legitimate thing. And I think in general, the attitude that I always take, whether it's by liberal or conservative judges, when somebody puts a concurrence out there in order to imitate what the limitations of a decision were, I think you take them at their word unless they do something else. And indeed, you want to take them at their word because then when it comes to public discourse, you can say, look, you can't go further because in the earlier opinion, Justice Kavanaugh wrote this. And as far as we can see, all the other five in the majority uh, were in agreement with it. So I am not troubled by opinions of that sort. I don't think they have any kind of secret motive. In fact, one of the things I think that is too dangerous about this highly polarized environment is that people are trying to read too much by way of insidious motives to people on both sides of the case. You can't run a nine-member collegial Supreme Court if supreme distrust turns out to be the operative mode of operation. So I think they should take him at his particular value. I understand that there are going to be dissents out there. I think a lot of them will turn on the kind of social issues what is it that we can expect if it turns out we allow laws like this uh, to basically be struck from the books? Last question on this topic, um, and it's a, a perennial question. Second Amendment says, right, a well-regulated militia. So the question is always gun ownership possession for the purpose of a militia versus for individuals who, I guess, have no intention, are not involved with the state militia. What's the what's the what's the answer aside from we've just decided within Supreme Court doctrine that the right to bear arms extends to individuals? Forget the militia requirement. Well, again, what happens here is that the truncation of the first clause in Heller means that we treat this right as essentially a freestanding right, uh, so that it is no longer tied to the provision and organization of the early militia, which has now morphed into the National Guard, both for the Air Force and, and for the Army. Uh, what it does, therefore, is it says that now we have to worry about justifications for limiting these things. And so now the discourse is going to start to shift in a kind of important way. Somebody's going to say, if we allow the right to keep and bear arms to cover this case, and therefore to make sure that Bruin is going to overturn the New York statute, what's it going to do to crime rates one way or another? And I mean, this is a subject of extraordinary sensitivity uh, because we've had several mass killings in the United States recently, some racist, some not, all horrible and inexcusable. Uh, the one in Uvalde, Texas, is clearly one for which police incompetence at a massive level should bear a huge part of the blame. It is incomprehensible to anybody why the police would stay outside when they had an active shooter inside classrooms mowing people down. Um, and that's not to do with the Second Amendment. It's an issue that we need to do with or without gun regulation because it's quite clear that many people will have guns even if they acquire them illegally. And so this then goes back to a debate which features large numbers of people. The most conspicuous player and, and probably the least liked in many cases is my friend, um, John Lott who wrote a book many years ago called More Guns, Less Crime. And his particular view was that there is no tension between these two positions, uh, because what happens is if in fact you get rid of the gun laws, uh, what you do is you now allow people who 
to carry guns who will use them for lawful and proper purposes, and that this, in fact, will add extra eyes and materials on the street and will gun down or stop gunners. I saw a film just the other day. Um, it was a guy approaches a crowd brandishing a weapon, uh, threatening everybody, and some woman walks out of the picture from the back and shoots him in the leg, disarms him, and it ends with her putting her foot in his back and him screaming for help. Uh, well, I mean, that's a defensive use of the gun. And John Lott will put you exhaustive illustrations of that. And then on the other side, people are going to come with increased suicide, increased mistaken use of guns and accidental harms of one kind or another. And so the debate is always going to be uh, contested. Uh, but if you start looking at this as a grand empirical matter, the evidence is to some extent muddied. Uh, but I have generally thought there's at least credibility, not certainty, in the proposition uh, that there are two things that matter with guns. One is the total number of guns in circulation, and two, the total number of guns who are in the hands of good people versus the total number who are in the hands of bad people. And bad people are people who kill to kill or to rob, and good people are people who use guns in self-defense, not hard to categorize. And my position on this is generally takes the view that the ratio is every bit as important as is the, uh, the appropriate uh, ratio that the ratio is every bit as important under these circumstances as is the total number of guns. So I would rather have some but greater number of guns with a larger percentage in the hands of people who will use them for proper purposes than a small number heavily weighed in favor of illegals. Now, this is an empirical question. And I think, in effect, that you're going to have a Supreme Court, which is then going to have to decide what sort of deference it gives on this issue. And what we learn from this particular case, is that they're not going to be completely deferential uh, when the state starts to come forward and make sort of general arguments about the global impact of uh, this on guns. The evidence is conflicting. I think what would happen for this kind of argument to succeed is you're going to have to show pretty convincingly that uh, gun killings and so forth in places that have strict gun regulations are lower than elsewhere. That's going to be very difficult to do right now because the places which seem to have the highest rate of violence in some cases are places where they have very strict gun laws. Uh, Eric Adams in New York is already on the hot seat because the number of killings that have taken place in various circumstances inside the city when the gun laws are very, very strict is very, very high. And people are saying, well, it's just not doing any good. What do you do in order to stop this? There are a billion different suggestions that you can make. And to each suggestion, there's an opposition. My view has always been that with schools and other quote unquote soft targets, uh, you are quite permissible for the schools to say that those people were trained in the use of firearms, uh, people in the military, people who are in the police and so forth, to carry arms inside a school, in fact, is an advantage rather than a situation. Uh, of course, you keep restrictions on having teenagers bringing guns into the school and all the rest of that stuff. Uh, but I think you can devise schemes of that particular sort, uh, which should surely pass constitutional measures. But what's interesting about it is the people who essentially think that the New York statute is what we want tend to be very suspicious of these limited and organized use of group guns, and I think they're probably mistaken on that stuff. So to end this uh, kind of discussion is, is I think that the sociology is going to be a non-factor in future cases 
and less than how you can show this a specific area with a specific problem where the use of guns has aggravated the kinds of rates. And so if you could find that carrying guns into a certain kind of facility and arena or whatever is going to lead to certain kinds of violence, certainly you could stop all of that stuff. Intermediate scrutiny doesn't mean that you give a free reign to either those people for or against one. You're trying to get balancing. You know you can't balance case by case individually, so you have to do it to some extent categorically. I think that this case is a first and sensible step to the correct balance, but I would basically say that sooner or later, first lower courts and then the Supreme Court will have to deal with issues that may well be unanticipated today. One more case to ask you about, and that was Carson v. Macon out of Maine. It was decided again 6-3 with the liberal justices dissenting. Now, the issue at hand is the constitutionality of Maine providing public funding for students unless those students elect to go to a school that provides religious instruction. Now, this is an arrangement in Maine that happens mostly in rural areas where school districts might not operate in their old schools uh, because it'd be too expensive and instead provide vouchers for nearby public or private schools, again, unless they offer religious instruction. Um, Richard, I want to know about this case and, and whether it should be split along ideological lines, but I'd, I'd really like to ask about the dissenting justices' uh, arguments, right? Justice Breyer basically saying, listen, this takes the, the structure from states may not deny funding to religious schools to states must provide it. So the question for you is, wh what do you think about his argument that it's saying, hey, uh, if states, if you're in the business of providing public education or vouchers, you have to, no matter what, even if you don't want to provide funding for, well, religious education. Well, look, I think the first thing to understand is that the argument that is based on the establishment clause or on the free exercise clause or in some combination of the two, as they often overlap, uh, basically draws a kind of an important set of distinctions. It's one thing to sort of have selective benefits that are going to be given to religious schools that are denied to everybody else, because what that will do is result in a wealth transfer from non-religious individuals to religious individuals. Uh, but it is equally an illicit transfer if what you do is you take public funds and you give them to non-religious institutions requiring taxpayers who have religious beliefs to join in. Uh, so the argument that is made by Justice Breyer is often put in the form, uh, it is not the duty of the state to subsidize religious institution, and the subsidy becomes essentially a form of illegal behavior constricted by the Bill of Rights. The answer on the other side is, look, we are doing a non-discrimination provision. And the theory of a non-discrimination provision is the state will provide to whatever school the parent chooses the money. If there are parents who have religious preferences, they will get the money. If their parents is who don't have religious preferences, they will get the money. This is very similar to the voucher programs that were uh, basically struck down in around the year 2000 when the question was whether or not you could exclude religious schools from them. Uh, the point here is you're not obliged at all to run any kind of assistance program of this sort. But if you do it, then the condition attached to that is you have to do it equally on both sides. And it turns out that unless you do it equally on both sides, there will be a subsidy. Uh, an illicit subsidy. 
So if you exclude the religious schools, uh, then the subsidy goes in the other direction. The other point to understand here is that there is a second checking mechanism of extreme importance. Uh, some of the early cases involve simply grants that were made by the government directly to religious and non-religious schools. So uh, we'll give money to schools to run reading programs to correct people's literacy and so forth. And there was a time when there was deep hostility to those programs for the theories that the religious schools could essentially convert the money from their permissible secular purpose to something else. There was no systematic evidence that that had taken place. And in fact, in many religious organizations, to avoid that kind of fear, what they would do is they would take programs for reading assistance and so forth, move them into special classrooms, which were free and not adorned by various kinds of religious insignias, crosses and the like, uh, in an effort to do it. And one of the things that made it so difficult to sustain the attacks is that watching that, and these programs were often in effect for years, and nobody could point to systematic violations of those things. Instead, what happened is, if it turned out there was the odd case in which somebody had gone over the line, you pointed out to the religious organization and it corrected itself. And so I thought in those particular cases, Grand Rapids was the most noticeable of these cases. Uh, the uh, liberal justices in striking these programs down went a step too far. But these programs don't even have that. This is not a question of the government giving a grant to schools who then admit students. This is a question of giving the money to all students and to their parents throughout the system. And so there is going to be a decision maker, i.e. the parent, who stands between the grant to a particular school on the one hand and the money that you're taking from the public government on the other. And the Supreme Court, I think, has rightly stressed uh, that if these are parental decisions, what happens is you have a decentralized kind of environment. And so some parents will go one way, some parents will go the other way, but it's not like it's going to be when they're the direct grants to the school uh, where it turns out there's a majority rule provision and the Congress or the states can pass some kind of legislation that could easily be balanced in one direction or another. And so in my view, uh, these particular cases, I think are extremely attractive cases for the protection. It's also the case that the recent precedents have pretty much followed these lines in both kinds of cases. So um, in the famous case dealing with the question of whether or not you can supply um, tar for various kinds of playground equipment to one kind of school without doing it to the other, Supreme Court said you've got to get both of them into the situation. So even in the case where it's a direct grant to various kinds of institutions, the basic rule is you give a little more scrutiny to those than you might give the situations where the grants are to the individual people. But I don't even think that this really turns out to be a close kind of case. Um, uh, one may make the very powerful position. I've sometimes have taken it myself. You know, I don't believe in public education at all. And if you take that position, you don't give subsidies to anybody. And if you don't give anybody subsidies, then it turns out you don't have any of these kinds of imbalances. Uh, but what you have to do is to recognize that whatever the state of public education was in 1791, uh, we are not such sufficient originalists that we're going to abandon public schools because we think that somewhere down the road in their administration in connection with the public government, uh, there's going to be some kind of a problem. What you do is you say we accept the new reality and then figure out where to go. This is not the only time we've done. I mentioned one other case. In 1979, there was a case called Catholic Bishops. And the question was whether or not you could unionize Catholic schools. And you looked at a statute which didn't have anything in it about it one way or another. And at that particular point, uh, the notion was that 
all sorts of internal autonomy of these school boards would be necessarily hampered if it turned out that you could force them to unionize against their will. And so in that particular case, what you did is you actually saw some kind of a preference for a religious organization because you were never prepared to say that about a private school. And this is perfectly consistent with modern theory which says that economic regulations are subject to very low levels of scrutiny, a position that I strongly disagree with generally, uh, saying, but when the moment a religious interest becomes involved, then the level of justification that the state has to put forward to limit it, that justification becomes higher. This issue is going to come right back in force in a cross between the First and the Amendment on Religion and the First Amendment on Speech uh, next term in the 303 creative case against Colorado. Um, so we've not seen the last of these religion cases, but I regard this as a sensible case and it will not generate one-tenth the controversy with the public at large as some of the cases having to do with the willingness of religious people to serve couples who want same-sex marriages when it's against their religious beliefs. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Make sure to read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, published on Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. If you found this conversation thought-provoking, please share it with your friends and rate the show on the podcast app of your choice. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. See you next week. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.